Welcome to the Connect FCS Ed Podcast, where we talk about family and consumer sciences education. Each episode is geared to support, recruit, and retain the professional FCS educator. I am your host, Barbara Scully, and I want to boldly celebrate with you today, families and careers. The term home economics may conjure traumatic memories of lopsided hand-sewn pillows or sunken muffins, but common conception obscures the story of the revolutionary science of better living. This field exploded opportunities for women in the 20th century by reducing domestic work and providing jobs as professors, engineers, chemists, and business people. And it has something to teach us today. In the surprisingly yet fiercely feminist and fascinating book, The Secret History of Home Economics, author Danielle Dreylanger traces the field's history from Black colleges to Eleanor Roosevelt, from Betty Crocker Brigade to DIY techies. These women, and mostly were, became chemists and marketers. They studied nutrition, health, and exercise, tested parachutes, created astronaut food, and took bold steps in childhood development education. And that is just a synopsis of Danielle's book, The Secret History of Home Economics, How Trailblazing Women Harnessed the Power of Home and Changed the Way We Live. I had the extreme pleasure of interviewing and chatting with author Danielle Dreylanger the other day, and I know you will enjoy this conversation. Just imagine sitting around a table, drinking a cup of coffee, and being able to partake in this conversation. I know you will enjoy it just as much as I did, and I cannot thank Danielle enough for taking the time out of her busy press release production whirlwind tour that she is on right now, promoting her book and being able to take a few moments to spend some time with me. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And most importantly, go out and support this amazing author and buy her book. It will lead down to amazing conversations and giving you some historical context of the trailblazing women that have gone before us, giving us this pathway of where we are in today's society. It truly is amazing and riveting. And I know I learned something and I know you will too. So please go out and promote, share, and most importantly, let's sing from the mountaintops that today's home economics class is today's family and consumer sciences classroom. I know you'll enjoy it and look forward to hearing what you guys have to say later. Hi, and welcome to the Connect FCS Ed podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Today, I have an amazing guest. Her name is Danielle Dreilinger. She is author to the newly released book of the secret history of home economics. It is scheduled to be released May 4th from W.W. Norton. Danielle was a 2018 Knight Wallace Journalism Fellow at the University of Michigan. Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time to speak and to share your wealth of information, but also highlighting and promoting home economics, which is also here in the United States, family and consumer sciences. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you. Yeah, 
no, thank you. So, well, let's just kind of dive in. What? Let's talk about the, the secret history of home economics. So the history of home economics uh, turns out to be much more surprising and much more feminist than most people think. So, you know, you yourself as a family and consumer sciences teacher, I mean, as you know, like what, what are the assumptions people have about your field when you talk to them about it? Well, I always have to preface that it is home economics, first of all, because so many people here in the United States do not, they think that home economics has gone away. It's no longer top, but that's because here in the United States, they rebranded themselves in 1996 as family consumer sciences. And because of that branding, it's never really stuck with the older population and community and transferring over. Right, right. And not only that, but, you know, I've noticed people like young people in the field today, like they ask me, oh, when did home economics become family and consumer sciences? And what they mean by that is, you know, when they have the same stereotypes, I think about home economics that everybody else has, which is that just stitching and stirring. Mm -hmm. Someone, I think it's Gayla Randall, Kansas said, and I quote this in the book, like people still think you guys sit around making brownies every day. (laughs) <laughs> oh, how we wish. No. <laughs> right. right, right. So, and the thing is that home economics at its start, what founders wanted it to be years and years and years before the, the contemporary view of family consumer sciences, the founders wanted home economics to be a professional field that gave women career opportunities in business and in science and in teaching, and that it helped housewives and you know, women working in the home to do their work more quickly and more efficiently and to focus on what they actually needed to focus on with housekeeping so that they would have time to do other things, whether that be studying or a paying job or taking care of their children. So it was very much not ever for stitching and stirring from the viewpoint of the founders. And in fact, you know, something that your listeners will know, but that the general public doesn't know, is, you know, the woman traditionally considered the founder of home economics, Ellen Swallow Richards, was the first woman to attend MIT. Mm -hmm. When I tell people that, it just blows their mind. Immediately, it's, it's so the very opposite of what people think of when they think of home ec. And people think of home ec as, you know, the field that tried to keep women like barefoot and pregnant, right? And in the kitchen. There certainly always was from the founding onward, a real tension over people who wanted to use the home as liberation and those who wanted to use it as repression. But the Ellen and the various other founders absolutely did see it as a way to create opportunities for women and not to limit them. Absolutely. Yeah, it was all about breaking down barriers. And something from the expert of your your book, it was one particular part was there was a woman who um, she had polio. She contracted polio as a child. And then her dad was like, well, she's not going to be able to get married and have kids. She's all of these barriers are now in front of her. And so she was given the opportunity to continue her education. And that is something that you share in your book going 
the gender <laughs> equality and um, the education um, that was during that time period, women were not given such opportunities. And so that was a gift. Right, right. So that was B. Pellucci, who some of your older listeners will have met. Uh, she died in the early 1980s, and she was a really revolutionary thinker, sort of in the second, starting the second half century of the field. But yes, she was somebody, and this is not unusual, her parents originally, her parents were Italian immigrants, and they thought as many American parents thought that, you know, she wasn't going to need much in the way of education. The girls weren't going to need much of an education because they would get married and they would work in the home as you know, housewives, as mothers. And, but the son, he needed to get the education because he was going to have to be supporting a family. And it was just that she had a physical disability from polio. And they thought she was going to be unmarriageable. Mm-hmm. And therefore, she got to get an education. Uh, but I think what that shows even more is it really points to the fact that home economics for decades, it became sort of the, the reverse, but for decades, it was the field that women went into if they wanted to have a career. It was the field that helped you get a job as a woman. Yeah. Well, just going on into like your book, I believe it was like on page 194, talking about the MRS degree, or also known as the Mrs. degree, where here's an expert of it going, college faculty despaired over the seeming disinterest of their students. One freshman told her family at Christmas, I'm not engaged yet. Then a professor complained. And if they got that MRS degree quickly, why hang around? That's something. Yeah, the statistics I looked up in the 1960s, uh, when the 1950s and 1960s, when the feminine mystique and the post-war World War II era of repression was really underway, it's just extraordinary how young women got married and men, for that matter, and how many women did not continue that, like they just didn't continue their education at all. They dropped the I forget the exact numbers, but you know the. Tons of women just dropped out once they got married. And, you know, for some of them, it was voluntary, but there were also just countless careers that would not let married women work there. And in fact, even in higher education itself, there were anti-nepotism laws for decades, wherein if you're basically, if one member of a family got professorship, the rest of their family couldn't. And what that meant in practice was that the man got a faculty job and they wouldn't hire his wife. Oh, (laughs) I know. Depressing. Yeah, it's depressing, but it just makes you, for me, at least kind of just be so grateful to be in, you know, this time period that we're living in right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way of looking at things, right? Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, I know from uh, in your book, it says in 1954, there were only 32 graduate fellowships in home economics in the U.S., all funded by invested entities such as the American Home Economics Association. I love that the American Home Economics Association has been around that long. Oh, it's been around since uh, 1911. Yeah. 1911, 1910, 1909, one of those three, somewhere in there. To put some of the 50s and 60s data in context, I just want to go back a bit and say, you know, so home economics 
began uh, in 18, early 1840s with Catherine Beecher, and now known really as the sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe of Uncle Tom's Cabin fame. And she wrote a big household and instruction guide that laid forth this manifesto that what she called domestic economy was too important to be left to mothers and that should be taught in schools. And then you go forward and school systems started to institute various forms of domestic economy and domestic science. And you fast forward a few decades and you get Ellen Swallow Richards uh, and you get Margaret Murray Washington at Tuskegee and you get cooking schools in the Northeast and land-grant colleges and Black colleges. And they all began to incorporate home economics as like college education, as professional education, which, you know, vocational education remains today. And Ellen led the Lake Placid Conference, uh, which a lot of people will be familiar with that who listen to the podcast, because basically like the history page of your average family consumer sciences textbook will say like, Ellen Swallow Richards and the Lake Placid Conference, and they decided to call it home economics. And, you know, they had found a home at Cornell, among other land-grant universities. And so for the first half of the 20th century, home economics really took off. And by the you know, 1920s, it was widespread. You had hundreds of colleges offering it as a major for women. You had government support uh, for, from both vocational education acts and the uh, extension service. So you had a lot of people, you had people who were employed to teach, to do community education. You had the rise of home economics in business. So people like Betty Crocker, you know, there was a team of home economists behind her and there were women in business at just every consumer company talking to consumers, usually women. And you had this, and you know, home economists worked on rationing and developed the five food groups and helped keep people from starving during the Great Depression and all sorts of amazing history that we can certainly talk about. And then what I I wanted to focus on, one of the things I wanted to focus on in the book is, you know, how did this amazing flowering of opportunities turn into this MRS degree, barefoot and pregnant stereotype that we know it as today, because I spoke to a lot, I mean, I spoke to a lot of women of, you know, I guess women of a certain age about their home at classes. And they all said that they were stupid and boring. Like women who were taking home ec in the sixties, they, you know, you learn to embroider stitches on an apron, which is not useful. You know, you learn to make blueberry muffins from a rote recipe and you just sort of made them without the critical thinking that people try to cultivate, that, you know, people try to cultivate now, the teachers have also tried to cultivate from the beginning. And all along there were voices calling for, you know, this home economics as being a home of intellectual rigor and science and hands-on science, you know, and not just, oh, here's how you mop a floor. But at the same time, Post-World War, you know, post-World War II is when that really happened for a bunch of historical reasons and a bunch of reasons in the field as well. But that's when you start seeing home ec- Originally, women built out the home as this place of power because men weren't paying attention. Like men weren't paying attention to what women did in the home or from and the careers that flowed out of that were considered acceptable for a woman. 
So they really stretched as far as they could. They created chemistry labs because women weren't getting hired in a normal chemistry lab. But if you wanted to study like the properties of meat proteins in a lab, you could join a home economics lab and do the exact same thing. You could do doctoral level work in nutritional chemistry. You just couldn't do it if you, you know, because you were like dressing it up in like girl drag, basically. Mm -hmm. But what happened then after World War II, along with the defunding of the Bureau of Home Economics, but that's when you started saying having people see that as the field that you that they pushed women into who were interested in science, who were interested in business. Instead of saying, go study chemistry, go study business, they would say, oh, you know, you should just go into home economics. And it became a real, unfortunately, a self-fulfilling prophecy for the field for a number of years, wherein because the stereotype came up that that was a less academic, a less serious academic endeavor for wives, you did have the women going into it who were interested in being wives, who were interested in getting their quote MRS degree and, you know, who were, and that's the quote that you read is, you know, this, these faculty members were just in despair. And this was in the fifties about, you know, wait a second, we used to have all of these like motivated career women coming through our program. And now we have these girls who just want to get married and who drop out, like what's wrong with this picture. And that, so that's, when that is when the the stereotypes I think started to come home to roost in the field. Yeah, and it wasn't until like the '60s when they started really pushing the way of like the the Corningware and Tupperware, all of these other. The reason why we have Corningware and Tupperware is because of these women who were in labs studying how to make a ceramic dish go into the oven that is not going to combust or break. So it's, it's those people who are, they were the, the pathfinders uh, for home economics and within our field. Right. Right. And home economists invented space food and a lot of the work that they put into space food has shown up as convenience products on everybody's shelf. So yeah, there are women who are nutritionists in the military who got their degrees through home economics, schools of home economics, who did the work on freeze drying, on encapsulating food in plastic, like in like, you know, those, those Capri Sun, like juice pouches, like that came from space race research by home economists. And I wouldn't, I, I honestly believe baby food also was, uh, was due to the home economists. In I did not look into that in particular, but certainly I wouldn't be surprised because they had so much about infant feeding over yeah. the years. Well, and I just, I find it also interesting that most of like the child psychologists of the time were highlighted and featured as men, but they had, they weren't the ones raising the children. Right. We have so many women who, there are a lot of women psychologists, uh, child psychologists who've specialized in child development. You know, we have the Montessori method because of Marie Montessori. Right. Right. Home economics, <laughs> it started before the Lake Placid and uh, Miss Beecher attending MIT. It, it started back at the what, neopolitic era. 
<laughs> well, gosh, what else? I your book is great. <laughs> Thank so you so much for giving me uh, an, an an advanced copy. I was able to get through almost all of it. Just it's been a wild ride the last uh, few weeks trying to prepare right. for both school and and also this side love that I I love to do with a podcast and being able mm-hmm. to meet so many amazing people through it. So your book is coming out May fourth, yeah. yeah, and. I have a question for you, actually. Can we talk about sewing and sewing machines? So you yourself are a teacher. And I feel like this, this is one of those unexpected controversies that I came across that really, you know, that has been so unexpected to me of the role of sewing in home economics and family consumer sciences classes. And I, I just wanted to like sort of open up the debate for the listeners. So one thing I want to to ask you, like, I mean, how do you use sewing in your classroom? So for, gosh, my first year as a teacher, it was the blind leading the blind (laughs) because I had never taught sewing and I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to sew. So I have no background in that. I remember as a young child um, seeing my mom's, uh, sewing machine that was under the kitchen counter and she pulled it out one time and I'm like oh I want to know how to do this and she's like for whatever reason it didn't it didn't work so I never had that opportunity and and that was it and so there was no such thing as uh, hand stitching in my household growing up or I didn't even know how to sew on a button So over the last, oh gosh, well, ever since I became a mom, you know, 17 years ago, I have learned how to do everything kind of on the fly, you know, and that's pretty much the state of education, isn't it? You, you learn as you go. And so with me going into my first classroom as a teacher in my first period prep, my first period class, it was, uh, uh, sewing and textiles, I, I learned along with my students. I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm so sorry. I wish I had more background in this, but we're going to learn together. And because I was able to just be open and honest with them and always try to be a day ahead of what they're going to be learning, I would be successful. And my students were more than accommodating and more than anything, they appreciated the honesty. So But when it comes to students, they, in the very beginning, they would hate sewing because it was, they didn't see a reason for it. So there was that reason, or there was that, they didn't see the reason they didn't, they didn't understand it. But as they like finished their first project for, for my curriculum, our first project was they created a, their own, um, Oh, a pin cushion. And that was hand stitching only. As soon as they finished their first project of their pin cushion, that's when all the lights came on and that the creativity was unleashed and the excitement for learning something new. And how proud they were of what they had made. And then we would slowly dive into patterns and um, 
And then eventually we would do, oh gosh, it was a, um, it was a Goodwill project where they created dresses and shorts for children in Africa, our community service project. And my students, I swear, they put more love and effort and energy into those, that special project than anything throughout our entire semester together. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And what what value do you think they eventually took out of it? The the value was appreciation of their clothes is really what it came down to. In the beginning, well, it was more it was midway through the semester. I would I found a a video I think I found it on YouTube or something, but it was about the cost of clothing. And it was so impactful for not just for me, but for all my students. That's all that they could talk about for a couple of weeks going. They were able to look at their clothes and go, oh, my gosh, what my clothes, the clothes that I just bought is doing to the world. What's it? it's doing? Um, it's tearing apart uh, a community because there's so much waste and and it's destroying water because there's so there's so much water that is used and wasted it's not recycled or upcycled anymore so now they they just had that value is um really came home for them and knowing oh my gosh I need to take better care of my clothes and not want to go out and buy, you know, those $150 jeans or something like that with all these holes (laughs) and distressed look, but really take care of my clothes. Right. Right. So I think this is, so this to me, you know, illuminates a bunch of things that I learned while researching the book. Uh, And one is One of the great strengths of home economics is its ability to take simultaneously this macro and this micro view. I feel, you know, I think that at its best, home economics gives students this 360 degree view of the world. And you let you look at this, you know, your T-shirt and you understand how it's made and you understand like your kids did, you know, the ecological impact of this industry. And the ways that it's, you know, hurting the water supply, you understand that people are, you know, literally slaving away in sweatshops in the developing world to make these clothes that, you know, they're all made by hand by somebody, Mm -hmm. just not by us. And the, you know, on the, the micro level, you know, learning how to do it themselves there's the practical value of, you know, you learn these skills and there's the practical value of like being able to sew on your own buttons and mend your clothes so that they can last longer. And you don't have to go out and, you know, buy another pair of jeans and the ways that it allow, like that can be a creative endeavor that can let you, you know, adapt your own clothing and dress how you like, or change what you're wearing. And so it's, and, you know, and then there's the, you know, pattern, I mean, depending on how deeply you go, you like pattern math, right? Like, oh gosh, how do I make this fit my own body? Where there are ways like that can be really empowering, especially for people whose bodies like don't fit well in a lot of the clothes you get from the store. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and you bring up a, a huge, that's actually something that we we struggle with a lot with our students with pattern math. What you're talking about is being able to read measurements. Students, they we are not teaching our kids how to read um, a measuring tape. We're teaching them algebra, we're teaching them geometry, we're teaching them all these other skills that, yes, those are foundational skills, but the very foundation is being able to read a measurement, uh, read a measuring tape. Right. right. And that's, and that really, that's something that's taught like what, in second or third grade, but it's something that should be continued on throughout all of high school and beyond. So I think, yeah, and I think at the same time, what happens with sewing is it has been over the lifespan of home economics, it has been a way that people have like had the, uh, what's the word phrase I'm looking for? It's been a pitfall for people as well, wherein there is a way that you can do this that teaches kids all of these amazing macro things about the world all of these transferable skills. And there's a way in which you can do it that's super rote and repetitive. And maybe it's fun for the kids who decide that they enjoy sewing, but it it doesn't actually teach them anything about the world. I mean, and this goes, and, you know, in terms of careers, honestly, you have to think bigger if you're going to teach sewing as a route to careers. And this has been the case for decades, you know, that, Yes, there was a time when being a seamstress was a decent job that women could get in the U.S., but that time is long, long gone. All of those jobs are terribly paid and they're somewhere else. So I'm, you know, I met an amazing family consumer sciences teacher named Angela DeHart in Virginia who only teaches hand sewing because she points out like everyone needs to mend, be able to sew a button back on. And surgeons need to sew and she could do fun sewing projects. She'd do like a quilting project, for instance, just doing hand sewing and didn't spend her time doing all of the machine stitching because she just thought that wasn't like that wasn't a good use of time. She taught kids about like, you know, e-textiles. There's jobs in textile science and textile chemistry. There's jobs where people making, you know, better fabrics for PPE, for Mm -hmm. instance, and, you know, smart fabrics, that doesn't have anything to do with being able to use a sewing machine. And this is something we were talking about Beatrice Palucci earlier. This was something she was amazing at. That was one of her big emphases that starting back in, I think, 1959 was when she first wrote about this, was the need to de-emphasize skills teaching to focus instead on these bigger questions and these bigger abilities. And I think that, you know, a lot of like one, the strength of home economics is that it has both the skills and the principles, you know, both the hand sewing and the textile science, textile chemistry and the ecology and the labor issues and, you know, the self-expression all at once. But I mean, it's really challenging. It's challenging to teach all of those. And it's challenging to, uh, it's challenging to, to, especially for like younger teachers and newer teachers, not to just, you know, quite literally like color within the lines, right? Of like stitch this pattern with a three inch, three eighth inch seam allowance. And that's that. So I think 
yeah, it, it's something that I really respect and admire when teachers can do that well. Well, what I love uh, hearing about, um, uh, who was the woman that you spoke with in Virginia? What is her? Angela DeHart. Angela, she, uh, she's incorporating that macro view on another, in a featuring another profession that uses that skill of sewing. Um, and that is something I know in with at, for my classes and my colleagues uh, at school if, if, of FCS teachers, we are always trying to um, look at things in a more globalistic view and spotlighting other careers of where <laughs> we emphasize, you know, with, so for me, for instance, I teach interior design and um, foods and nutrition. So with interior design, I'm always doing a career spotlight in every single unit and within the interior design field. And that could be a color theory. Um, that could be a, um, a painter. That could be a, um, a, clo- a designer. And we're looking at all different aspects of careers within that field. And that's exciting to hear that other people, you know, across the, across the U.S. from me who are kind of doing something similar. And that's, that's value uh, right there and where we are benefiting our students in a more uh, globalistic view. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely think that, you know, from my reporting, uh, teachers aren't given enough support on making that that match, the macro micro match. Like I definitely, you know, I've heard about young teachers saying like that they were going to like quiz their kids on the name of the parts of a sewing machine. I mean, that strikes me as like not great use of your brain space, right? Like well, there there is something to that because if you're able to cor- be able to uh, correctly identify the parts to, let's say, a sewing machine, you are going to be more efficient when it comes to having to fix something. Because mm. if you're, because in my in my sewing class per, per se, everybody had their one sewing machine, mm. and you took care of that in the classroom they needed to know how to uh, take care of the bobbin. If the, if something, um, if the needle broke, it, how to in, change out those things uh, and fix it or repair it or because that's skill. And yes, it's not a big chunk of brain space. There's so much more to it because they're now problem solving. They're having to use critical thinking skills. Uh, They're having to articulate what it is that they are needing to do. Um, So there's a lot more to it um, because it's also a safety measure, Mm -hmm. which as a CTE, we all have to do a um, a safety exam for our students, either through using precision exams, um, which is our, gosh, um, it's an assessment base uh, in how we're able to get one funding, um, it, but also to maintain our frameworks, which mm-hmm. is, that's our alignment of our curriculum. Right. 
So there's there's more to it than what just meets the eye. Right, right. And I definitely am sort I definitely am pro being able to fix things. It's 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 funny. So it just reminds me of, of two things. Um, one is a personal thing, and then I'll go into the sort of connection with the book. So I guess why I would argue with knowing the names of things is that what kids really need to know is not necessarily the name of this, of a part, but how to look up that information should they need it. So I uh, recently was trying to replace uh, a coil on my electric stove. And it turned out that I, what was, there was a piece of it that was shorting out and it wasn't the coil, it was the thingy that attaches the coil to like the plug, basically. And so I looked up the, uh, I looked up like the manual online because, you know, I I didn't have the manual for the oven anymore. bought by a previous owner of this house and I found like the name for it which of course now I'm forgetting but it's like the coil socket or something like that (laughs) um but what this reminds me of is that household equipment was actually a field of study at Iowa State within the home economics department uh it was at its height during the 1930s and 1940s because as of you know the 1920s when electricity was becoming omnipresent in urban and suburban areas and eventually spreading through rural areas as well all of a sudden you had these this new equipment and they realized that people using the equipment had to learn how to take care of it at least that's the way that they the Iowa state you know explained it to the powers that be who are funding the program. It was because it, it was like, it was a specialty within home economics. And they put out these, uh, the, the, this magazine for the School of Home Economics that presented it as like, you know, that there's a little, they had a little like fiction story about like this woman whose stove coil shorts out and, you know, of course she says, of course, this was really a man's job, but could she wait until the electrician came, you know, and she took out her pliers and she fixed it herself and, you know, saved dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, it was, and I own one of the textbooks for the course, it was really an electrical engineering course. It was like a hands-on repair person plus electrical engineering course, Uh, And it was like studying the chemistry of meat proteins, right? It was this way for women to learn this material that cloaked it in this acceptably feminine guise. And some of those women, when World War II hit and uh, tech companies of the time, you know, the science companies, GE and Boeing were looking for women to replace the men who, the men engineers who went to the front, who were drafted, they drew from Iowa State's household engineering students because they already knew the electrical engineering that they needed to know for to be working on you know, defense pro- projects. Well, and learning learning on the fly, like what what you did, that is that is what we do now. That is. Um, you know, using Google, using YouTube, using all of these technology, technological tools that we have at our fingertips at all times now, we are constantly inundated with new information and being able to streamline new things and to utilize 
old understandings with new concepts. And it's a beautiful marriage uh, between the two. And being able to use YouTube as your uh, learning platform, I think one that's innovation right there. Uh, And being able to finally be able to figure out what the correct terminology was for that thingy <laughs> coil for, um, uh, for your, uh, your stove. So <laughs> the, being able to properly identify um, tools and components, um, it's, it's important. And it just kind of goes on it, it, with what you're talking about. It's, it's important to be able to have that foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, oh, I, I love this. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of reeling going, Oh, um, but going back to just being able to learn on the fly, it is, it's what we teachers are doing and that's what students are doing uh, in, in today's technology era. And um, just home economics itself, it's, it's relevant, it's here and it's never going to go away. It's, it's just going to continue to reinvent itself. To make a, a brighter future and also to help help through help the lifespan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope so, but I think at the, you know at the same time, one of the questions that I've had is, you know, the so when B. Palucci uh, emerged onto the field as a thinker in 1959, uh, that was when home economics was recognizing this real hit that they had taken in the 1950s uh, in the public imagination. Sputnik had happened. There was this huge push for more science. And instead of defending itself as science, for whatever reason, the home ec leaders of the day uh, decided to defend themselves more as career training and, you know, what today we call like whole child learning. And that was just, you know, the first of a number of times that HOMAC has ended up on the short end of the stick of, you know, education trends. And the field began to say, like, how can we, you know, how can we be more relevant? How can we show that we're more relevant? And they've, you know, toggled between a combination of changing their emphasis, changing what they teach, and then sort of a public awareness campaign. So like making sure they're doing less stitching and stirring and then telling, convincing the public that they are not just stitching and stirring. Um, And the thing is that this has never stopped. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I started doing this research in 2017. I went to AAFCS in 2018 and 2019. And you know, people starting in 1959 through this day have been wringing their hands saying, we need, we're so important, we're so relevant, we'll never go away, but we, how do we prove our worth? How do we show the public that we are meaningful? And 
I mean, frankly, I have been struck by the lack of success that the field has had in this. And sometimes it's clearly not been like sometimes the field has done everything right. Mm -hmm. It seems like they had this amazing run in with second wave feminism back in the early 1970s, where Robin Morgan, a pioneering second wave feminist thinker, came to the American Home Economics Association conference and told them to quit their jobs and that they were tools of the patriarchy. And people, you know, like uh, it sent a shockwave through the field because all of these women who the leaders especially you know who had seen themselves as career women as women like helping to liberate other women were gobsmacked to realize that the general public thought that they were tools of the patriarchy i mean and robin morgan's speech which i wish i could have quoted in full because it's a really well-written speech but you know she said like when she when you were done with the American like female teenager. She is a, a limp, gibbering mass of jelly suited only for marriage. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> but this was back, you know, before the field responded with remarkable integrity and honesty and said like, wow, we really have been perpetuating stereotypes that we didn't realize we were. We really have been part of the problem. We want to be part of the solution. And things like, I mean, Title IX, the law that brought us, you know, women's basketball, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> also said specifically in the regulations that it would, you couldn't put girls in home ec and boys in shop anymore because that's what they used to do, you know. I mean, they still, to some end, believe me, even though it was prohibited, the practice continued in plenty of places uh, for a number of decades longer. Mm -hmm. But so the field, you know, really react, they reacted in the 70s to respond to changing families, to say, you didn't have to be a nuclear family, you didn't have to have a father and a mother, like it was, there were all these different ways of being a family and that's fine. And the field to this day, you know, is really... uh, open-minded yes we still are looking at all of the other ways of how a family is formed and maintains the family dynamic so well I guess it kind of leads the question in my head what do you see happening with the future of home economics or family consumer sciences um well one and I'm, I'm I'm on my soapbox about this one I think that I think y'all should change the name back I think you should give up on the family and consumer sciences FCS term. I mean, even though I use the hashtag say yes to FCS on Twitter so that people will see my tweets on this subject, I just think it hasn't worked. And so many people have told me this. I mean, I had like women tugging on my sleeves at the conf- those conferences and whispering in my ears saying, we never should have changed the name. Yeah. And it just, you know, it, I respect what they were trying to do when they rebranded, but it's been almost 30 years and still people don't know what family and consumer sciences means. I just think, you know, people know what home ec is. And I think that right now people actually have a more sophisticated understanding now than they did then without, you know, really thinking much about it of what, what it means to take care of a home Mm -hmm. for one uh, they certainly have a more 
you know, a less traditional idea. What they don't know about with home ec is all of the things that go beyond life skills. They don't know about the career aspect of it. They don't know about the project-based learning and like the global you know, geopolitics parts. But people do want life skills. They're really interested in that. And of course, right now, people have been stuck in their homes for a year, year well, plus. And, and that's where they're realizing the importance of those life skills. Uh, being able to go, oh, I I can, I need to know how to read a recipe. I'm sorry. It, it's broken down into several different ways of being able to read a recipe, but it's, the baseline is you need to know what a tablespoon, a teaspoon, <laughs> the liquid measuring cup and a dry measuring cup is. You need to know what the differences of um, what those are because it makes or break a recipe. Um, right. And But then, then on top of that, you know, then to take, be able to, people you know, what's even more useful than that is when people learn to take the next step and cook without recipes mm -hmm. so that they can say, you know, what, what in, like, this is what I have in my fridge right now. Right. And I can't go out and get more food because I have no time or because I'm broke or because it's a pandemic and I'm limiting the number of times I go to the supermarket. Right. Like what can I make with like this bag of noodles and this like slightly old broccoli <laughs> and being able to actually make something nutritious out of it you know that's science in uh, it's it's science one it's nutrition it's another but it's also um it's it's relevant it's right yeah and that's and that's what I think I love about our field is that it's life skills for today's students. That's kind of my my slogan um, for just for what home economics is. It's just trying to put a modern spin uh, for today's students is really what it is. Right, right. And I think what the field, I mean, I think that the field, like this is a great time for the field to revive. In fact, when I first got the idea to write this book, even before I knew anything about, uh, even before I knew about Ellen Richards attending MIT, I said, wait a second, shouldn't home economics, what happened to home economics? Shouldn't it be back by now? And this was 2016 that I had this idea. So this is, you know, pre-pandemic. This is uh, the this was just me thinking about like HGTV and the food network mm -hmm. and all sorts of, and the revival of interest in, you know, knitting and all sorts of DIY stuff and nutrition, and like so many topics like parenting and the growing emphasis, like push away from standardized tests or discomfort with standardized tests. I was like, shouldn't this be back by now? So I think that now, you know, after the, the COVID experience, there's all the more reason for the field to come back. But I think that, you know, the people in, and not look, this is easier said than done, but I think that the people in charge need to do a, a better case, a better job of making their case to, uh, like state superintendents and state school boards, because basically, I mean, the standards like here in Louisiana, where I live, the family consumer science standards have not been updated fully in so long that they still refer to FHA hero standards. Uh, that would be the future homemakers of America home economics related occupation standards. 
that term hasn't been around in uh, since the mid nineties. Really? Yes. So I think, you know, on a practical level, like the people who are in charge of how kids spend their days in school need to be convinced. And that that actually is a taller order than it ever has been, or, a, well, not ever has been, but because we're in another cycle of, you know, catching kids up after COVID academic loss, the pressure is going to be on to cut electives and to, you know, do literacy interventions, et cetera. Um, but the other thing that the that the that I think the field needs to do is try to stop defining itself around other people's terms and its own history and the sort of tangled the tangled knot of academic higher ed like politics all of that stuff like the old names like the stuff that they've been trying to make work for 20 30 years it would be so great if they could and this is harder you know not saying this is easy to do put that aside and say what is home economics what can it be like forget the endless focus groups and the endless subcommittees and you know promote it as this you know macro micro global learning that like helps kids be you know helps with adulting and also helps kids get jobs like i think it could just it it this field just gets caught up in its own under its own feet a lot and i agree with you in so many ways of what you're saying um yeah we do get caught up with it and i I just actually rewrote kind of what my my kind of bio is mm-hmm. of what I'm trying to do when it comes to this podcast. Yes, it's a recruiting mechanism. Yes, it is a I call it kind of PD bites for FCS um, to help be- to help benefit educators, but it's also to promote awareness to community members um, saying, hey, home economics is still alive and well. It's just, it's a little different. It's not your mom or your dad's dad's old home economics class anymore. It's uh, for, for this podcast and what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to present a fresh take on recruitment and support for today's modern home economics educators in right. the family and consumer sciences classroom. And that's, that's what we need to do. <laughs> and that's what, that's kind of like my, my mission and my call to action is to promote what we're still doing. Uh, and it's not, it's not gone away and the unfortunate thing is that, yes, um, classes are being disbanded and uh, there's administrations uh, in public schools who do not see a good use of for uh, for student time in those classes. They're more focused on needing to take um, those higher, more rigorous or academic uh, classes, chemistry, psychology, uh, um, language arts, English, history, you know, your core classes, because the focus is to make sure that all students are 
eligible to get into higher academia. Right. And what is wrong with promoting vocational work? What is wrong with promoting internships? What is wrong with saying, let's have those signing ceremonies. We need to, everybody has the opportunity to continue on. And that needs to be, that needs to be considered okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, also I think what I'm saying is, trying to say but like also go big like I want the field y'all to go big like yeah. it's you know I it's that I saw some some FCCLA uh, uh kids from Mississippi uh they did a project where they made little makeup kits for teen girls in foster care for Christmas because they thought like maybe they these kids don't necessarily have anyone to like give them these like little fun things that they want so they can look like their friends. And that was, you know, a wonderful heartwarming project that, you know, made me a little teary eyed that was incredibly meaningful to the kids who got it. But let's also make sure then that we're teaching kids about, okay, like, what do you know about the foster care system? What's going on with the foster care system? Why do kids, and how do kids end up in foster care in the first place? And who gets adopted? And what are the systemic problems? And, you know, what are the prob- like problems that families are struggling with? And then, hey, also, if this is a field that you want to go into, if you're really moved to help these kids, what does that field look like? What sort of education do you need for it? And so on. Like, I, that's like the, the field has often gotten stuck on like the small project side and let, let drop the bigger picture. Yes. And it's, I love that you're talking about the foster care and FCCLA and because it's really all about the project-based learning and wanting to make uh, a better future for our communities, Uh, trying to find new innovative ways uh, to make something better, more efficient. Uh, My friend Kelsey over uh, at a neighboring school district her students for FCCLA, they're going to, I believe they're going to nationals. Um, she has three students who th- they came together for a project and they, um, gosh, they made a recipe for, um, it's gluten-free, it's peanut-free, and there was something else uh, and it's vegan, uh, I believe it was. And it's turned out amazing. Hmm. And it it just, just highlighting what these kids are doing when they find a purpose and passion and creativity, because they're now thinking outside of the box and thinking outside of the box. That's what we need to do as a organization um, within, you know, AAFCS and all of our affiliates and all of that. um, Thinking outside of the box, it provides more opportunities. Yes, you might get looked at a little funny. (laughs) You're looked at differently, but you know, I'm kind of beyond the past of caring anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone feels inside like they're being looked at funny also, no matter what people are actually doing. Yeah. 
No. Oh gosh. I love it. Uh, well, I'm going to have to wrap this up and I just have to say thank you so much for such a intellectually stimulating conversation. <laughs> it's really had to make me kind of rethink things and also know like, you know, what I agree with and kind of in just going, the future is so bright. <laughs> Yeah, I thank you for some wonderful talking with you. And I think that, you know, you both as a podcaster and a teacher, you're doing such important work. I mean, the kids I talk to love their home ec classes. I went to a bunch of them and they just, you know, they loved it. And they all told me that, you know, they felt like those classes let them be themselves in a way that they couldn't be in other parts of school. Like they just found it, find it really meaningful. So, Despite the uh, massive challenges of the last, you know, year on top of the existing challenges, you should just know that you're doing, you know, work that's really meaningful to young people. Absolutely. And you know, it's all about those relationships that we form in the classroom. Or I, I have students who tell me every day that my class is the class that they look forward to the most throughout their entire day because they're able to relax and mm-hmm. we're able to explore a little bit more into the relationship side of the curriculum and, you know, get to know one another better. So yes, our classes do matter. Our classes are relevant and the future is better when we're together. (laughs) (laughs) But no, thank you so much, Danielle. I appreciate your time. I value all that you've shared today and the book, The Secret History to Home Economics, Yes, this has been amazing. So thank you. Yeah, everyone. I don't know when this episode is going to come out, but I have some virtual book events coming up. People can find them on my website, thedailyreason.com and join in from anywhere if uh, they want to hear more about it. And, you know, they can order or pre-order the book and I'm available to come to people's, you know, Family Consumer Science Associations and stuff like that, if they want to talk more about the subject. Yeah, well, I will definitely put your name out for possibly keynote speaker or a workshop for this year. I know for my affiliates, we are virtual. So I'll be sure to, you know, pass your name along and everything. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. And just remember, together, we are better at leading the way to student success with FCS. Thank you for joining the conversation today. Each episode on the Connect FCS Ed podcast, we boldly celebrate families and careers by providing inspiration, support, and resources for teachers, students, and families everywhere. If you could do me a quick favor, please leave me a five-star review on iTunes. My mission is to get this out in front of as many people as possible to help educate and inform the community that home economics is alive and well. Thanks again for spending your time with me today and be sure to visit fcspodcast.com for past episodes and resources to help spread the word that family and consumer sciences is today's home economics.